Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. This episode is a little different. I invited a couple of previous guests on the long run to discuss a specific issue, how the industry can do a better job of mentoring young scientists and creating on-ramps to careers in the biopharma industry for scientists from underrepresented groups. Jay Bradner, the president of the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, and Andy Plump, the president of R&D at Takeda Pharmaceuticals, are a couple of powerful R&D leaders. They are in positions of influence and can make meaningful changes in their organizations in certain situations. They shared a few revealing anecdotes in this conversation, which said a lot to me about how their thinking has evolved on inequities over the past year and what things they can do to make positive changes in their workplaces. I'm thankful they accepted my invitation to discuss this issue, which they didn't have to do. This conversation was recorded live April 15th on Clubhouse. If you're not familiar, it's the relatively new audio-only social network. This recording was specifically part of Biotech Clubhouse, which is a part of the app for Biotech Conversations. Thanks to Chris Garabedian and Brad Longcar for inviting me to guest host this session in their particular clubhouse. A brief note on format as well. My welcoming remarks and Jay's brief self-introduction weren't captured in this recording, so the episode starts out by diving straight in. If you want to know more about Jay's transition, you can listen to him discuss that in depth in a previous long-run podcast. I'm providing a link to that episode in the show summary on Timmerman Report. Now, I asked these guys a lot of questions in the first part of the episode and then open it up to audience Q&A in the second half. It's a little like old school call-in radio shows, which provides a sense of spontaneity. I like that people on this platform seem to be motivated to have candid and constructive conversations, although that's not always the case. Also, the sound may sound a little choppy at times because people were talking on iPhones with different kinds of microphones, headphones, etc. Not the usual plug-in microphones that I try to get guests to use to ensure high-quality audio recordings for this show. Basically, the audio quality may be a little spotty at times, but I think the value of the points being made is high enough to put up with a little bit of that in spots. I'm curious what you think of the Clubhouse format and what you think of me hosting topic-oriented shows like this versus the traditionally personal, immersive, one-on-one interview format that you've come to expect on the long run. If you have any feedback on that, hit me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Consider this an experiment. But don't worry, I have a number of terrific guests lined up for in-depth conversations, including biotech legend Sue Desmond Hellman. Okay, that's it for now. Please enjoy this conversation on mentoring young scientists with Andy Plump and Jay Bradner on the long run. Now that you guys are in the positions that you're in, how do you view the 
let's call it a disconnect of sorts between academia and industry. And, and let me try to kind of summarize it like brief history here. Like, you know, uh, I see Ethan Perlstein is in the audience and he, we, he and I talked about this before. The, the postdocalypse, I think, was a term that he kind of coined or, or popularized a few years ago. But there's just a limited number of academic slots for faculty positions. Uh, there's um, a lot of graduate students come up uh, with that kind of being their they have their eye on that prize. But, you know, it's just very, very difficult. There's just not that many. The grant acceptance rate is something like 20 percent. It's very low. Uh, first time grant winner for an R01 grant is somewhere around the age of 40. So it's just very hard for young people to get established. Um, and, you know, now this year with the pandemic, I mean, there's just been a lot of people struggling, um, maybe lost a year of momentum in their graduate school or, or postdoc careers to get, you know, those key papers, whatever that they need to get to get that faculty job or to get noticed in some other way. And, and at the same time, there's all this amazing stuff going on in industry, like lots of money coming in, lots of new drugs and vaccines and things coming out the other end with products. Um, and, and I hear people in leadership positions, whether at small companies or large companies, saying, we need more people. <laughs> so uh, how do you guys think about like making it easier for people to make this transition or make it more welcoming, make people envision possibilities of what they can do in industry? Andy, please, you first. Sure. I mean, well, firstly, you know, I... You know, I actually just I'll go back to my own experience, which, again, it was 25 years ago. So I don't know that this sentiment still exists entirely, but I'm sure to a large extent it does, which is that I trained both on the East Coast and the West Coast. I went I did my undergraduate and my Ph.D. on the East Coast, and I did my medical school and my medical training on the West Coast. And I did my postdoc. So you know, penultimately, before I went into industry, I was in my postdoc and adjunct professorship, and I was working closely with Mark Tesse Levine, who many people will know is now the president at Stanford. And you know, we had a great you know ride together when I was in his lab. And at the end, when I ultimately made the decision to go to industry, he was so supportive. I mean, it was just amazing this progressive West Coast mindset. When I talked to my graduate um, advisor back at Rockefeller University, he, you know, he he thought I was dead to him. You know, the idea of my going into industry, I was dead to him. You were turning and to the dark side. I was turning to the dark side, and you know, it took about a decade before he would speak to me again. We're on good terms now, but you know, but actually, you know, and I didn't know what to expect, you know, because I was coming in all of a sudden, never having thought what this would be. And I stepped in and I realized after about six months that I had spent my whole life training and gearing myself up for doing what, what we do now. You know, it's just, it's just, I mean, it's quite different. And there's, there's, there's certainly value in being in either setting, but they're quite different. And I, what I love about industry is I love the patient focus. You know, you know, people, people make, you know, poke fun at us because of the fact that we have underlying profits. But but to be very fair, profits and, and patient focus are not um, mutually exclusive. In Andy, fact, they do you, go. Well. Do you think that perception of turning to the dark side has has that changed in recent years? Do people have a more favorable view of industry uh, than than once upon a time? Well, maybe maybe Jake can tell us because he made that transition a few years ago. Well, um, you know, I will be the first to say that, and I'm not putting this on you, Luke, but I, I find most academia versus industry um, 
considerations, proclamations to be underwhelming. My biggest surprise in coming to Nibber was just how similar it is to the other uh, elite research institutions where I, you know, I had the chance to to work and train. And so maybe that's <laughs> the most reassuring thing I could say to people in postdocs in academia, imagining what science might be like. There's incredible heterogeneity among academic experiences, and there's surely incredible heterogeneity among industry experiences. So just impossible, credibly, to generalize. Um, so that would be the first comment, which is you could find a very scholarly environment in industry, and you could find a very spurious environment um, in academia and, and vice versa. But things are really changing now. I think through the lens of reproducibility and its considerations, industry has to be has had to become a lot more scholarly so as not to you know chase blind avenues from minimally publishable units and and reciprocally academia has become radically more translational with startup companies popping up before the index paper is published or the thesis is presented um, and and both of these things I regard as positives and so, so there's a narrowing of the disconnect I guess is one way to there is. I mean, and for sure, the core businesses are different. When I was in academia, I was totally focused on scholarship, patient care, um, my chemical biology class that I taught with Ralph Mazicek that I just loved and might be the only thing I miss about being a professor. Um, and, and at Novartis, I'm, I'm just unapologetically focused on drug hunting. Um, but you know, at their core, both of these things are in service to the best science and the biggest impact on a medical practice that, you know, I could be a part of. Now, Jay, when you say that there's more similarities than differences, um, I mean, a lot of people would think that, th I mean, there's there's a different, I mean, there are different um, measurements of success in academia. You know, the paper in nature is the coin of the realm and, you know, and, and you're measured on different things in biopharma, like, you know, filing of INDs or, you know, trial data, um, ultimately products. Um, and, and there's like, you know, the, the need for communicating more in teams, working in teams, more um, in industry, again, to generalize. What are some of the similarities that maybe maybe surprised you, though, when you made that move? Well, Luke, these are fair points. I will say that maybe our lab in academia was an outlier. We had um, an interdisciplinary lab of chemists, biologists, computer scientists, um, in vivo pharmacologists. You know, we used to joke it was a biotech company at Harvard to create knowledge. <laughs> And um, and um, in coming to Nibber, that same team spirit, that same team science, we start a project in my old lab expecting it might be 13 authors and four institutions. We start a project in Nibber expecting it might be, you know, 40 scientists from, you know, eight of our research units. Um, the biggest similarity, Luke, and I hate to get so ethereal about the whole thing, but maybe as I'm getting older, I start to think this way, is like, what is the chapter in science supposed to be about? I mean, you may mention some incentive structures. I hope that those aren't orienting or motivating for anybody that works at Nibber. I, I, I really hope that as for me and, and my team, you know, that this chapter is supposed to mean something, that the rocking chair moment, thinking about this time, you know, won't be measured in, I guess, stock options or publications or patents or INDs, but the one or two or ideally 10 or 20, because we're resourced to do that, you know, singular moments of contribution that make the whole thing 
you know, worthwhile. And so maybe the difference is that there, you're in a training mindset in academia, receiving that training or, or really providing it. And in a professional research environment, there's maybe just that little bit less distraction from delivery against the purpose. I see. Okay. Well, can we talk a little bit about like programs, things that you do? I know that at Nibber you have a, a postdoc, an industry postdoc program. You probably have other things going on with internships, I suppose, for undergrads or graduate students as well. Can you say a little bit about what are some of the things you do and how they work? Sure. Um, so um, we also believe at Nibber that um, having trainees around graduate students and postdocs is really vital to the culture of scholarship and truth-seeking that's just totally essential to make an impactful medicine, without which you can be really diluted by your own fantasies of thoughts and value creation, which for us is just purely measured in you know medical contributions. There is no intermediate strategy at Nibber. Um, and so having postdocs around gets you to think out loud, gets you to be the best version of yourself and to be kind and to be in a learning mindset and a teaching mindset. And, and I really believe that those read through to better innovation. And so we have graduate students at our um, academic institute, the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel. Um, we invite graduate students from Harvard Medical School, local to Nibber Cambridge, um, in the therapeutics program to do time with us. And we have a postdoc programs at each of our large sites that are very organized and, and, and run, run by an outstanding leader and Granger who puts everything into making this a compelling training experience. But we realized, Luke, that most of the outstanding scientists we recruit were trained in a discipline of drug hunting, but not in drug hunting itself. And there might be people who go to a postdoc trying to pick up a tool or a trick to become a scholar and deploy that tool or trick to understand nuances of the human condition. But there are others that want to learn how to hunt drugs, that are interested in the science of therapeutics. And there's no PhD program in the science of therapeutics, or I'd done a PhD. And so we've created what we regard as just the definitive passport stamp for the aspiring drug hunter in training. It's called the, innovative, the innovation postdoc. We have postdocs that are pursuing scholarship, and they, we will deliver with them the manuscript, the insight the scholarly contribution. But these innovation postdocs, well, there may not be a paper. There might be a patent or there might be a drug. And what's interesting to me, Luke, is I don't know the numbers, but I would imagine the innovation postdoc at Nibber is as competitive as a faculty position at Harvard. We had 1,500 applicants last year for 14 spots. Oh, that was going to be my next question. Like, how many of these people are there? Uh, you know, we started the yeah, we started the program with as a social experiment with um, these 14 brave first uh, class. But, you know, seeing the demand for, you know, truly authoritative training and drug hunting, I, I think there's a big opportunity to grow this program within Nibber and more broadly within the industry. And I, I know we're not alone in offering these sorts of experiences, though I think the offering that we have with its curriculum, its all-access pass to drug discovery um, – you know, that we don't stand behind, well, there's going to be a paper, you play it safe and maybe become a professor. I mean, this is a springboard into biotech or ideally, you know, into one of the elite drug hunting units at Novartis. And how long do, are these supposed to last? Well, you know, this is a bit of a finishing school because all who entered this postdoc have truly outstanding training with, uh, you know, graduate training in the natural or physical sciences. And so um, we benchmark it 
between you know two and four years. Um, you might know that a traditional chemistry postdoc is two years. I did four because I was <laughs> I was new to the download, and sometimes I, I get some heat from the chemists like you really did a four year PhD uh, postdoc. Um, and so we're respectful to the clock that people feel they're internally on, but two to four years is is a meaningful enough time to make a contribution. Um, and to download a meaningful training in drug discovery. And at the end of that, what is kind of expected? Do you do you encourage or anticipate that they will uh, become full-time staff scientists or something else at, at Novartis at Nibber, or is it sort of like in the academic tradition, like okay, you've you've, you've learned something, you've made a contribution to the field, and now you can go get a job somewhere else? It's explicitly not an apprenticeship, and so. Um, we do not look to our postdocs as a, you know, um, a source of, you know, cheap labor to do Novartis drug discovery. We are literally focused on their training. Um, and it's an early program, Luke, so I may not have all the answers, but um, for sure, getting to know some of these scientists in this program, we'd be crazy not to find, you know, um, a role for them within our organization. Um, but we, but they would compete for posted roles as any scientist around the world. Interesting. So, Andy, um, how is this similar or different to what you're doing over there at Takeda? Well, so, I mean, I'll just mention very briefly, Luke, the similarities, and then just to expand horizons for those who are listening, I'll talk about some of the other other opportunities that exist, because it's, it's not just the core sciences. You know, it's a very, what we do is so multidisciplinary. You think about policy, you think about you know, some of the quantitative sciences, some some of the regulatory sciences. Um, we also have a, a postdoc program. We have a very extensive internship program that makes um, our our labs available to um, college students and graduate students to come for summers or for years. And similar to Jay, we don't consider this an apprentice program. You know, we love if these individuals come back. And, and oftentimes it's the case, if it's a good experience, then it's, it's bi-directionally positive. And, and we have a very high rate of individuals coming back and taking jobs eventually at Takeda. Um, we actually have a very special program for physician scientists, which are you know, a very rare breed and they come out of very extensive training. I had fallen into this bucket and we offer a program that's very similar to the one that Jay mentioned at Nibber that is fit for purpose, but also provides some education um, I will say that um, we also are a uh, global organization, and so we try to expose young scientists or those who are interested in coming into industry to global healthcare problems. And actually, we have a program that we, a program that we call Achieve. This is a program that's designed for very young talent who are less than five years in industry, and they commit to a five-year cycle where they're going to take um, three assignments in different parts of the world. And well, the intent is to expose individuals to different parts of our business and to, and to healthcare in different parts of the world, which can be quite different. Okay. Um, how much do these people get paid? Well, it, it depends, you know, and, and, and Jay, you can, you can add on if, you know, the postdoc level positions tend to be, you know, slightly more than what you'd see in an academic postdoc, but not appreciably so that that's a, a kind of a reason for coming. And then, you know, it, de- it really depends what your background is. And so pay is competitive to, to what an industry pay is. I mean, it's more than what you would see in an academic setting for sure, but it depends also where you're based. You know, the Boston compensation structure is for us very different than what the, what you'd find in Tokyo or in Vienna. 
Um, so it depends on the background, depends on role, depends on location. It's enough to rent an apartment, but maybe not take out a mortgage. <laughs> Again, it depends. I mean, I I think in it, it, one of the one of the upsides of industry actually is compensation is greater than what you'd see in an academic setting, and I don't think that you know people have to worry about their finances when they're in an industry setting for sure. How do you guys do it, Jay? Exactly the same way, Luke. It's um, competitive for sure to an academic postdoc, um, but it is it is lower than the entry-level Novartis position, again, because it's a, a part of the compensation is, of course, the training um, opportunity. And um, the only reason I don't give you a number is I don't have it at the tip of my tongue, um, but it's better than academia, to academia and competitive for sure in this um, very small um, you know, marketplace of, um, of, of drug hunting training um, apprenticeships. And I, I should say in fair balance, um, I think very highly of the Vertex program in Boston as well. That is a shorter and more focused program, which could appeal to some, um, whereas we opted for you know, really a, a meaningful download of um, a, a new set of skills, um, concepts, and, and language skills. Now, you mentioned, Jay, that there's 14 spots in this, you know, drug hunting postdoctoral program. Lots of demand, 1,500 or so applications. Have you guys talked about opening this up, um, creating more positions like this um, um, or, or, or no? You know, Luke, we would love to make this program um, quite a bit bigger. We're obviously not an academic institution. And so... Um, by the way, there aren't 14 postdoc roles at NIBR. That was the entering class of that one year of the innovation postdoc. We have this um, the established Novartis and GNF uh, postdoc class, and you know there there must be you know over 100 postdocs at Novartis um, in our labs. Um, still comparatively small to an academic center, but again, we're a, um, ruthlessly focused on drug discovery. Um, what I would love is if any in this community would love the design principles and stamp out a, you know, this or a, um, a tailored program in, in their environment. I, I can only imagine that um, the biotech environment in this town could serve as a wonderful training opportunity. It's, I know it's a role reversal, you know, but um, the elite science the structural biology, the atomic resolution of disease, the the, the delivery of, of, of high biotechnology to dissect pathways of human disease in industry is on par with the best in academia and, and there oh. should be an outstanding training environment. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, um, <laughs> the idea that there's interesting work. I mean, once upon a time, people might have thought, well, there's like crank turning going on in industry and it's kind of dull. And like the really people who move the frontiers forward are in academia. Not not really the case anymore. For some of those reasons you cite. I mean, the, the tools, the ability to ask and answer questions uh, with, with the, you know, you got the keys to the kingdom there at Nibber, right? Or in Takeda too. It's just, um, yeah, you, this is intellectually stimulating work. Um, you know, maybe. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Andy. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was just gonna. I was just gonna add a piece, which is important because you're you're making you're making me think as you're as you're talking about the fact that it's a bit a bit of a black box to many people who've not stepped foot in the into the biopharmaceutical or biotech industry. What is it like inside those walls? And you know, I, when I came in, I came into a really 
um, rigorous, tough environment. And I was just thrown into the fire and I had to figure it out myself. And it, it wasn't pretty. It took me a while to get my, my feet steady. Um, we don't do that. You know, we, we really focus on, on mentorship and ensuring that, you know, whoever we bring in, whether it's a postdoc, whether it's an intern or whether it's a new, new scientist or a new employee, we have a very structured and disciplined mentorship program. Um, we actually use, we actually are, the majority of our organization, about 70, 70% is here in Boston, R&D organization. We have about 3,500 R&D scientists and other employees in Boston, and yet we're a Japanese company. And, and we, we really link to these great Japanese values. It's a really great mix. Now, what, why, why more of the focus on um, cultivating, you know, and mentoring people rather than just, you know, sink or swim? Why are well, you doing that? Well, <laughs> and you, you say it and, I, and to even have to give an answer, it feels so intuitive. I mean, I mean, firstly, you know, the, the environment is, is one, you know, that we, we're, our focus is really on people, whether it's the patient or whether it's our employees something that we've really discovered all of us over the last year, you know, working in the settings that we're working in, well-being is just such an important part of life. And and it's not just well-being for a select few of us, it's well-being for all of us. And this brings us to, obviously, our focus on diversity and inclusion. Um, I, before I answer your question, we I'm actually- I'm going to get there too. <laughs> well, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. But we have a program called the Tomodachi program, which is Japanese for mentorship. And so every new employee that comes in is assigned an individual, a single individual who's not in in his or her or their line. It's not a management line. It's someone that can purely help to orient it and 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 you know create a safe space for individuals to to grow. There's also a piece. You know, one of the things that is I find so incredible about industry is there's so many different directions you can develop. You know, in academia there are. But it's more limited in industry. There's so many areas, so many ways that you can develop. You can be a scientist in a lab and continue and can continue to develop for your entire career to and do exciting work in a laboratory. But as a scientist in a laboratory, there's so many possibilities for you to expand into development, into project teamwork, into project management, you know, into regulatory sciences, and even into the business side. And so, having mentorship outside of your line helps expand uh, horizons. How are you guys? Um, you brought it up, Andy, and I was going to ask about this. The, you know, the, the diversity and the inclusion question. Um, this is on a lot of people's minds. This is a, obviously a great place to start if you just think about on ramps for young scientists, whether it's internships for undergraduates or uh, work for grad students and postdocs. What have you guys done on that front? differently maybe in the last year or two? Well, you know, it's front and center, I think, for all of us, uh, given the events of the past year and, and what's been happening. And I, it almost pains me to say that that this is something that's been heightened over the last year because it's 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 like this, it's like watching the Flintstones. You know, you go past this same scene over and over again. We've seen this happen over and over again, and we always lapse back into poor behaviors. I hope that doesn't happen again. Um, we started about three or four years a program really focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, some of the things that we're doing, I don't know that they're different, Luke, but maybe variations on a theme, is we're really building not just behavioral m mindset, but real infrastructure to enable um, a diverse and inclusive environment. You know, be, it could, because it's a fallacy to think that it's just about how we how we behave. 
it's it's tangible and concrete numbers. It's having metrics that you track. You know, and 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 the, the problem that we face is not so much at entry level, certainly for gender diversity. When we start to look at other tiers of diversity, there's still a long way to go. But as you start to as you start to um, march up the ladder, you start to hit broken rungs. And as you start to look at more senior um, spots in organizations like ours, um, academia as well, there are huge gaps. And I think, you know, the two things that we're doing beyond the infrastructure, one is really creating an environment where people feel comfortable and included. And then the second is really making a tangible effort to change what the leadership profile looks like and really enhance the, lead- the diversity of the leadership What's an example of one of the metrics on your dashboard that you look at and that you want to, uh, that you have your eye on, yeah. you want to improve for the next year or two? Examples, pay equity. You know, there are huge imbalances in pay, particularly we know that for gender, um, but that falls across also other lines of diversity. Um, a second is attrition. We look at attrition measures and we ask, you know, what, how does attrition compare when we look across different demographic groups? Those would be two examples, and there are many more that we track to help to enable our efforts. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Jay, what are some of the metrics on your dashboard as you think about creating on-ramps for more diverse young yeah. scientists? I, I think this is an area of real leadership, to be honest with you. In industry, you don't um, see results of what you don't measure. And um, we very closely track and increasingly disquietly report um, our successes against measures of the gender pay gap, which I'm proud to say at our company is you know, negligible if measurable at all. Um, gender balance at every level, at entry, at um, uh, mid-career rock stars, as I call them, all the way through to our board of directors. Um, we measure. Uh, the number of diverse candidates on every final slate for every role at Nibber because it has been learned um, largely in multiple um, high um, competitive uh, communities of employ that unless there are two diverse candidates on a final slate, um, there isn't one. There's no chance, no real effective chance of hiring the diverse candidate in the end. Um, I want to give well, you those are comp- those are company wide kind of principles I think you're discussing there, but uh, specifically for the young people, like that that next generation of young scientists that you know hopefully will fill up that pipeline and uh, you know become the R and D leaders of tomorrow, like you and Andy. Yeah, let me double click on that for you. Um, if you look at the heads of R and D, and we assemble actually we assemble quite a lot um, through COVID, you'd be hard pressed to find a less diverse um, group of people and. Think about this. In a field that is entirely predicated on innovative impact, to have such a lack of diversity is is quite jarring. The workforce in the natural sciences begins with total parity, um, 50-50 men and women in the gender dimension. Um, The parity is, I think, less apparent along ethnic and racial lines. Uh, By the time in academia, in the sciences, that... um, uh, tenure is allocated, 24% are women. In biotech, in leadership, 30% are women. Board of directors in biotech, 18%. And we actually just read a study by Deerfield um, that 48.5% of biotech companies don't have a woman on their board of directors. And so we can do a lot better, and especially in an environment like Nibber, 
which regrettably for me and my leadership team is a source of many CSOs in the biotech industry, um, we have stated the goal across actually all of Novartis, uh, but in particular in the sciences, that we will achieve 50% um, gender balance in leadership, in management, um, in this company. And we're 50-50 in the workplace. We're 45-55 women and men in management right now. Over 149, you know, nationalities in the in the business, and and there's an awful lot of diverse thinking around the table and innovation that is required. And uh, our board of directors is about a quarter um, uh, uh, female. Um, this is a work in progress, Luke. But in my five years here, we have made year-on-year progress against these stated metrics that are baked into our strategic plan, into our bonuses, into reports that we give to ESG investor communities. Um, these are these are real targets, um, and That's we're actually women. organized around hitting them. But you sound like you're talking mostly about gender there, though. What about people of color? No, this is a, a equally important question, um, and I'd be the first to say that you know there are for sure altruistic reasons to care about gender, uh, racial, and ethnic diversity, um, and beyond diversity to make the culture inclusive enough that you're benefiting from this diversity that we actually need diversity in all dimensions around you know, a table of project team leaders in a drug discovery institute, um, chemists with different perspectives and training, um, and of course, you know, black, white, Hispanic, Asian as well. And um, it is, as it turns out, Luke, harder to measure um, the dimensions of race um, in a multinational company and to have accurate data just based on you know what is um, what is ethical and legal in different regions of society, um, and so it, it's harder to navigate through the numbers there, except in some locales. But I can tell you, we we care equally about diversity in that dimension, and it's actually quite a bit more challenging in the physical sciences to achieve our goals in racial diversity, though we are hard at work at this. Okay. All right. Well, um, hey, folks out there, I want you to know you're welcome to raise your hand, um, chime in with questions of your own at any time, and I can call you up uh, onto the stage to ask your questions of Jay and Andy. Um, Could we come back a little bit before while we wait for questions to come in about um, pandemic times? Andy, you kind of flicked at this, that, you know, this need for more understanding for people. Have you discovered like something about um, mentoring or staying in touch with people during this time that's that's actually helping them like stay engaged with their science and be be more productive and um, but, so so it's I mean this year has been such an incredible learning experience for all of us and I would say that the 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 efficiency for for many has gone down, and what we found, we've done extensive outreach, and um, we have, we have a survey that we've we've worked through over the course of the year that we call the Care Survey, that really looks at how how well people are doing during this difficult period, and what we find is that, um, at, and actually it's been what we've so what, I, what I'm going to tell you everything is exaggerated for um, for females as as they report. It's been much it's been much harder. Of course, it's harder on everybody. And they're overlapping 
normal distributions, but it's been harder for females for reasons that have, that have been discussed extensively in the, you know, in, in many places. But it's been a tough year, and people work harder to get the same amount done. People are on constantly on meetings because we've lost that interaction and in that spontaneous interaction in the hallways. Um, people, it, it's been really a tough year for people, and so we've tried coming into 2021 to make changes that can help to um, decompress people. Um, so I would do say, it, do you see it amplified among young people, like especially, you know, kids at home, um, getting your career established out of sight, out of mind from the boss, like all kinds of anxieties that get, get rolled up. Well, no, we haven't actually. So, so the demographic that stands out has been, um, kind of, you know, young to middle-aged women. That's the demographic that stands out. Everybody across all demographics has had a difficult time navigating this on average. Um, but, but interestingly, we've done an interesting experiment, Luke, which is that, you know, we, we, we made a major acquisition in 2019. And so in 2020, we were working a lot of consolidation. And so we were taking a lot of roles that had previously existed in Europe and we were moving them to Boston. And a lot of the individuals in Europe had decided that they, they weren't going to come. And so last year, we hired about 600 new um, scientists and R&D employees into the Boston area during the pandemic. You know, and, and so we had a lot of engagement virtually with these individuals. And actually, you know, of course, every individual is unique. Their, their own their situation is unique. Their, the way they engage is unique. But I would say on, on balance, you know, and this, this is both anecdotal and also driven by survey data, the new people who have joined the company feel incredibly engaged, you know. And so we've been able to manage through the challenges through virtual connectivity. Um, so it's actually a little bit opposite. For, and a lot of these people are young people, entry-level scientists, and they've done actually quite well during the, you know, on balance during the pandemic. Okay. Okay. We got a few folks uh, raising their hands. I'm going to call you up on stage, um, Emmanuel. Um, let's see. You're up there. You want to, what's your question, Emmanuel? Yeah. Um, thank you for this discussion. I just wanted to find out like um, where like the stand on like international students for this for these uh, programs. Well, thanks, Emmanuel. Um, I'll start. Um, we are a global company. Uh, Novartis um, operates in more than forty countries around the world. We have research sites. Um, in six country, in six uh, global sites, and we have mm -hmm. manufacturing facilities in you know forty or more, mm -hmm. and so um, um, we hope that through um, connectivity to global communities of of science and medicine, that we can attract scientists from just all over the world. So we have just no bias at all um, around where scientists. Uh, um, uh, come from. In fact, um, I actually think um, from both the lens of diversity and bringing something new to our environment, we tend to be more excited about scientists who um, have traveled a great distance. Great. Thanks, uh, Emmanuel. Um, next, let's call up uh, Mitch. Hello. Uh Thanks for doing this. So I'm a science policy reporter for the American Institute of Physics. Um, so I'm, I'm out of my wheelhouse here being in the biotech rooms, but I like 
comparative discussions of workforce issues in in the sciences. And I was wondering if anyone on stage could reflect on um, the experience of the doubling of the NIH budget. And I've I've heard anecdotally, you know, that there was kind of a cliff in terms of a whole bunch of. Um, I think you referenced earlier kind of the postdocopolis. And I, I'm wondering if you can speak to, you know, what went wrong in terms of how that was done, in terms of how the money was allocated. And part of the reason I ask this is there's a discussion going on right now in the context of the National Science Foundation and uh, pumping out quite a lot of money into that agency, perhaps some others as well. And I think there's a similar fear going on about, you know, how do you do this sustainably so you don't create these cliffs of people who have nowhere to go? So I'll stop there. Yeah, you know, um, I, I've written a little bit about this, no expert, but I, I think there was a time when, you know, those budgets were going up really fast and creating lots of positions for grad students and postdocs in academia. And then um, one day when at that budget then plateaued and the postdoc fellowships were, um, were, were running their course, <laughs> there just weren't new positions being created, um, particularly faculty positions that they could graduate into. And it may have been compounded by the fact that there were a lot of baby boomer faculty members who um, were not ready to retire or didn't retire and create some spots. And then a lot of people just found themselves in these kind of like semi-permanent postdoc um, difficult positions. Um, I don't know, Annie J, your thoughts on what, what happened there? Well, um, I'm no expert on public policy, that is for sure. And um, Mitch, to your comment about joining a biomedical discussion, if there's anything worse than a physicist talking biology, it's for sure a biologist talking physics. And so you're welcome here. Um, an influx of resource into biomedicine through an expanded consideration of the NIH budget um, would be, as it has been before, a powerful stimulus package that probably would do more to resource science as it is staffed today than to create a pig and a python, a, a cohort of expanded um, trainees. The scientists would be better resourced. Now, this pandemic might rightly, with the increased curiosity about science and the increased familiarity with scientific language that um, the lay press has so effectively um, delivered and captured for um, global populations of non-scientists, I think it, we can expect more interest in science than ever before. Um, but an investment in the NIH to me is, creates only an opportunity, and it's, uh, it's a great read-through of funding into the economy because having held any number of NIH budgets, that money needs to be spent every year into supplies, into reagents, into instruments, um, into contracts. And so um, I see only only a good that can come out of this. And Jay, the last man, after, after my heart, I've, I've gone on record advocating for a tripling of the NIH budget <laughs> for, no, for many of the reasons that you cite. <laughs> yeah, and I think, thank you. And I think there's only one last important thing to say, Mitch, in that if you talk to biotech investors, they'll say they've never had more money available for companies in support of new ideas, but that it's talent that's rate limiting. And so even if I'm wrong, and this did serve to increase a generational cohort of scientists, there's more than enough resource in the overinvested biotech industry to support them. 
If you like this show, subscribe to Timberman Report. As Bob Moore, Managing Director of Ulta Partners, put it recently, quote, If you want to know what happened, you can check stock prices or news feeds. If you want to know who is creating the future of medicine and why it is going to happen, read Timmerman Report and listen to the Long Run Podcast. End quote. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe to get inside access to this valuable perspective on a weekly basis. And there is another way to support quality independent biotech journalism. You could sponsor the Long Run Podcast. If you are at a company with your own podcast, this is one excellent way to let potential listeners find out about your show. The Long Run has more than 5,000 listeners every other week. Ask my business rep, Stephanie Barnes, for more information about becoming a sponsor. Her contact information is on TimmermanReport.com. Raj Venkaya from Takeda. Thanks for joining us. What's your, hey. uh, what would you like to ask? Yeah. Hey, Luke. Uh, good to talk to you. And hey, hey, Andy and, and Jay. And just so folks know, I'm a, I work at, at Takeda um, uh, with Andy. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, you guys have, have really provided uh, a really accessible understanding uh, from my standpoint of, of what it's like to to take this career path, um, an industry career path. But, you know, one of the one of the questions that often comes up from young scientists is what's the right time frame to go the biotech route versus the big company route? I mean, is there a, a, a best time to do that? Can you you know, reverse course or can you change course in midstream? And I think all of us have seen uh, different people be successful doing things in different orders. But but can you give any top line guidance to young scientists that are debating, should I join this really hot biotech at this really hot moment in time or go to a big, big company? And, and you know, if I if I do something, could my decision somehow be irreversible or or foreclose opportunities in the future? Yeah, Rajiv, that's a great question. It's great to hear your voice. Um, this question comes up a lot um, after seminars at academic centers these days at these hilariously entitled um, lecture invita- invitations, I'm sure you get as well, called Alternate Career Day. I mean, I'm interested to know what the alternate career <laughs> is. There's so many people, more people going into biotech these days. Um, um, I would, you know, at the Harvard Medical School, at the HST, I gave the Alternate Careers Day lecture five years ago. There were about 20 people in there. Last year, there was like 140. So um, things are changing. As I think about it, there's definitely more lanes in the off-ramp from academia than in the on-ramp. And so if you're serious about being a scholar for one chapter of your time in science, it is best to do it, I believe, in adjacency to your training. It's such a perfect springboard from a rigorous basic science postdoc to start a lab and to really defend your ideas in manuscripts and in grant submissions at conferences of scholars. And and, and that's what I did. And so I might be influenced by that. But it was such a rewarding time that I would just never trade away. The cool thing about science these days, as you indicate in your question, is that um, it is bidirectional. You know, um, Nathaniel Gray is one of my closest friends in science and did a postdoc, had an incredible career in industry at GNF, and then went to the Dana-Farber to become a professor now at Stanford and has, in it, has had an impact in just every chapter of his time in science. Uh, Phil Jones at the IACS and MD Anderson, a story drug hunter from MD Anderson. The list goes on and on. And so it's more bidirectional than it used to be. 
Um, but my bias is that that chapter of scholarship is a really nice icing on the cake after training. Andy, what are your thoughts? Well, the, so yeah, actually, I think Rajiv was also asking about, you know, once you've made that decision, is it better to step into bio, the smaller biotech environment or your biopharmaceutical environment? And I, you know, I'll, I'll touch on both actually. So on, on that particular question, I, I don't think it matters really. I think there's so much fluidity right now between what we call biotech and, and the biopharmaceutical industry. There's so much capital in biotech. You know, look at a company like Moderna, which I don't know, was, was it's, it's only it's new in the last 10 years. It's a biotech and it has a market cap that's, you know, almost larger than ours at Takeda. You know, so these companies change very rapidly. I think the most important thing is as a scientist is thinking about where he or she or they may want to end up um, is is really what are they working on and who are the people that they'll be working with. That the micro environment, that hand, those that handful of people that you end up working most of the hour of your hours uh, in the day alongside, you know, the culture of the company and the values. Those are the pieces I think that are more important than whether it's a small company or or a big company. You know, on the on the when to transition, you know, Jay, you 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 you've had such a brilliant career and you had great success as an academic. You were entrepreneurial, starting up biotechs. You know, I think most individuals who go into academics don't end up like you with a stepping stone into a president of Nibber type role. And I do think that you should follow your heart. And there is certainly an advantage and there's a learning curve in taking on a junior faculty position that is quite different than what you get in industry. Um, but I think that the opportunities to grow and learn in industry are, are equal and you know, it, it really is so individualized. I, I know for me, for example, when I was leaving my training, having finished my postdoc, I was in my mid-30s because I had gone through both clinical and scientific training. And, you know, I was an adjunct professor, so I wasn't running my own laboratory. I was starting to apply for lab positions. It really was exactly the right time for me to leave. And I think that had I decided to go into an academic role, I don't know that that would have, I don't know that that would have accelerated my growth in industry versus what I did, which is stepping in in kind of a mid-level managerial role. And that learning curve for the first decade, really, for me, was just incredible. And, you know, different from Jay's, Jay steps into a very senior role from an academic position. I grew up in industry learning learning the ropes and not just the science of what it takes to make a new medicine, but but that art. So you know, I think I, very individualized. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, I would agree with what Annie said about finding a place where you can really learn, being learn and grow, being more important than necessarily the small or the large. But you know, one thing I I remember speaking, interviewing uh, Vicky Sato uh, years ago when she was on the faculty at Harvard Business School teaching a class on biotech, and she advocated for finding a mid-sized company, uh, one of these where. I don't know, 200, 300, 500 employees, whatever, where the company is going through a transition and, you know, a young person kind of establishing his or her career uh, can really learn a lot of aspects of the business uh, while also having, you know, a chance to interact with senior management and really learn about the big issues in the industry. So there's there's lots of different um places to go and learn, but you know, like, don't get stuck. <laughs> you know, Luke, I think you've hit on something really important. And that is probably on the list of critical factors about where to work. The number of employees is 
pretty low on that list. You know, there is what's the science? Is it something that really resonates with you? What's the culture of the group? Do you really respect the people that you're going to be working with? Do you respect the, 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 the resourcing of your organization? Is it in a town that's right for you and your family? You know, it, um, there's a lot of, of dimensions, I think, that are more important than if it's a pharmaceutical company or a biotech. Yep. Totally agree. Hey, Chris, you came up on stage. You want to ask a yeah. question? Make a comment? Yeah, re really great discussion. And um, look, both of you have achieved what I think are very enviable leadership positions uh, to lead R&D for large organizations. But, you know, as I talked to, you know, people earlier in their career, I'm really almost shocked how many who have scientific backgrounds, or even I met uh, an, uh, somebody who went in to get their MD from Harvard, and they knew right away they didn't want to use it, and they wanted to go into venture capital. And so I see a lot of people early in their career, they want to go into business development, they want to go into venture capital. Many of them say, my goal is to be a biotech CEO. And, you know, they want to get out if they're, you know, have a research background, they want to get out of the lab as quickly as possible <laughs> to start building their, you know, um, you know, business bona fides, right, to, to take a leadership role. So just for, for both of you, what's your vantage point? What advice would you give somebody of what's the best pivot <laughs> from research? And maybe if there are any examples you have from your own organizations where someone moved out of the R&D role. Um, you know, how would you advise all these people? Cause I just, I'm surprised how many people they complete their degrees and then they just want to be on that business track. I can start Jay. you know, uh, Chris, it's a great question. And I, I would say, you know, firstly, there, there, there's so many different ways to kickstart a career in our industry. And, you know, if you're a scientist and you've, you've, you finish your postdoc, it doesn't mean you need to take a, a lab-based position. There's so many opportunities. You know, even outside of the walls of biotech or biopharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical industry, um, McKinsey. You know, I know Jay and Novartis have this, like, siphon of talent from McKinsey and Novartis. And, you know, we've had some great people that have come in. You know, it's not for everybody, but doing management consulting it can expo ex expose you to, to a tremendous amount of learning. Um, project management, you know, understanding how you fit pieces together in complex programs, um, regulatory sciences, as I went through before policy, we had someone earlier, Mitch, who was in physics policy, you know, there's an immense amount of policy that needs to be built out in our business. Um, there's just data sciences, you know, for, for those of you with computational backgrounds, more and more our industry is becoming an industry that's built around data and digital. So, there's so many different ways. And, you know, the idea that you have to, you know, cut your chops by spending two to three years in the lab and then you could launch from there. It's just not that's, that's old school. I think there are lots of different ways that you can come in to, and, you know, again, follow your heart. I'm with you, Andy. I am. Um, and not that you're saying this, but um, I really do encourage folks not to, you know, uh, become a dilettante who when they introduce themselves in a business development interaction. It takes 45 minutes to hear all the jobs they did for 20 minutes each, you know, that to really think in chapters of, you know, what can I do to become quite interested? But Chris, I would add to all of the um, uh, opportunities that Andy shared, um, business development, which for many of our scientists is really stimulating to go from 
thinking deeply about one project and delivering and therapeutic to taking a job in search and evaluation or closing deals where they see a broader range of projects. Um, I'll give two quick examples. Um, no, I know a physician who at the end of medical school, instead of doing a residency, went to McKinsey for a short time, got interested in the pharmaceutical industry, um, took a low-level managerial job, worked his way up, you know, like the UPS driver that becomes the CEO. And, and actually, he is the CEO of Novartis, Voss Narasimhan. And Voss, you know, ran vaccines in the commercial unit. He ran development and global drug development. Um, had a really rich career that he built and navigated all through one organization. But in each chapter, you know, picked up a new, um, uh, a new tool set that would ultimately make him as effective as he is today. And a second example, maybe more accessible because not everyone's going to be a CEO on this call, um, Prakash Raman, who um, was one of our very best medicinal chemists and got interested after making many important molecules in looking at external science. And he worked in business development. Then he led Novartis Oncology Business Development. I recruited him to be the head of Never Business Development. He built an incredibly strong organization, led that organization for several years, closed many important deals. Now he's a partner of flagship pioneering. Um, and so I and, and, I, and what I love about Prakash and our current head of business development, Phil Gottwalls, is that they're hardcore scientists. And so they see the non-confidential deck and already have you know, deeply considered insights around the opportunity um, for the business and importantly, feedback for the innovators. This great, is great, great feedback. That's... Yeah, I just want to say thanks, guys. Those are great feedback. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. First comes the depth. Then you can think about the breadth. <laughs> I like it. Well said. Um, <laughs> okay, so we got uh, a few more people. Been very patient, Susan. Uh, Susan, what's your question? Susan Ward, are you still there? Um, if not, Aaron. Hi, really enjoying this, Jay. Always great to to see you. Listen to your man. thoughts. Nice to see you. Um, both of you guys uh, spoke earlier about, specifically about the postdoc programs at your two companies and uh, the training associated with them for young scientists. I was wondering if each of you can comment on the training that happens more on the job for young scientists who join your organizations uh, as junior lab heads, group leaders, both in terms of technical, say drug hunting training, but also as, as mentors mentoring training, how to be a supportive, impactful mentor as they progress throughout their career? Well, you know, Aaron, I'll say that firstly, you know, it's not, it's, it's no different for a young scientist, what you do, you know, from day one in a lab and in one of our labs versus what you do in an academic lab. It's, it's really the same. I, one of the nice things is you have access to a, a ton more resources to do what you want. I think it's more the, um, the, the kind of questions that you're asking. And, you know, we were talking about this earlier. And one of the thoughts that I, I was going to share earlier now is that we do more hypothesis testing than hypothesis generating. And I think in academia, it's a little bit more the the converse. And so, um, so I think that that takes some learning, you know, the focus around the experiments and designing experiments, we answer questions is something that is, is done, I think, more in this setting. 
Um, and as I was mentioning earlier, there's an immense amount of mentorship. And I and I think that that's true in most large companies. Certainly at Takeda, we, we take that as you know very seriously when new when new scientists join. Um, you know, Aaron, I hate to put you on the spot, but I, I would love it if, if you'd be willing to weigh in on your question. You know, um, Andy, you may or may not know that Aaron, um, just a cherished colleague uh, from my time at Nibber, um, now on a new adventure, but was um, just one of our very best, most scholarly, most effective scientists, and honestly, Aaron, group leaders and mentors. And so I would really welcome your sense, having actually served in that role for early career scientists to get a sense of what, what you felt like we did well and what where you felt we could do better. Um, unlike your program, Andy, we don't have an, an automatic, automatically assigned mentor for every associate in the building. And I'm going to bring that back and see, explore the feasibility. Um, we do expect that the managers of our associates take seriously mentoring in the dimensions of feedback and inspiration and curiosity. Um, we have a very structured program for leaders um, called the Unbossed Leadership Experience, where we give people some tools to build psychological safety, to empower associates, to carry themselves in the best way that they can, which is by just being themselves. All right, um, Aaron, um, what do you think? How, how did they do at Novartis and what could they do better? <laughs> by the way, K Karen, can you mute yourself before uh, it's your turn? Well, first, I'd like to say, Jay, the check is in the mail. Thanks so much for the flattering, the kind comments. Um, you know, I, I think one thing that Jay said earlier uh, really resonated with me and my experience at Novartis, which is, at least from the science side, I'll get to the mentoring in a second, but the scientific scholarship, um, there were way more similarities between uh, my experience in academia and in industry than, than I thought had been led to believe by discussing it with other, other peers, including my father, who's a scientist, but came from another generation when industry was, you know, sort of the booby prize. And that's absolutely not the case now. Um, in terms of mentoring, I think like many large organizations, I, I think uh, if you keep your eyes open, there are fantastic examples of very supportive, very thoughtful leaders at Novartis uh, I found those leaders to be extremely accessible. And I, I think uh, Jay may remember that one of, you know, in his first maybe month, I think uh, I, I had lunch with Jay, uh, you know, talked about his path. And, and uh, so at, at least at, at Nibber, uh, I found that, you know, people were very open. If somebody wanted to learn and grow, uh, there was a very supportive environment for that to happen, and some of it was organic, some of it was more structured, as Jay pointed out, some of the um, mentorship training. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Great, thanks, Aaron. Um, hey, Luke, before you open the next question, I, I paid someone from Decatur also to join the call. Can we reach out to that individual? <laughs> you can have them step up. Already had your turn. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Aaron. Um, next up, Amber. Hi everyone, thanks so much for uh, the con um, the great discussion. My question is for, you know, kind of younger scientists who are joining on the R&D side, how do we, you know, while going deeper into understanding the technology and how to um, uh, apply that in um, an industry settings, but also to be mindful of the additional career paths that 
are um, available to us and like how do we kind of go about when being more mindful of designing our careers and you know setting up potentially like um, goals for say like every two years or every five years so sort of like um, should we consider taking additional classes and how do we go about identifying mentors that could help us achieve our career goals thank you Maybe I'll start, Jay. So, Amber, I, you know, I've, I've been very opportunistic. I've never really ever had a goal. I've just tracked and followed my heart and things have come my way. I've learned over time that my demographics being a white male trained as I have been make that easier for me than for other people. So I do think it's you do need to have goals and you do need to position yourself. But I, I'll say the one piece of advice that I'll, I'll give is create a network as as robust a network uh, that you can, because in the end, especially in a, a town like Boston, and this is a town, right? It's all so much of what happens and so much of what comes to us comes to us through our network. I think this is great advice, Amber. Um, in my time in science, there has been no um, singular mentor who I could turn to for all of the relevant career or personal challenges I face. And so it's realistically more than one person. And so this insight into having a network from Andy is so important. Different career transitions, different disciplines, medicine and chemistry. But, you know, my wife is an attorney and just the stark contrast of her life, how hard it is to find mentors in these, you know, really ruthless corporate legal environments. And I've always felt, uh, you know, standing beside her so lucky to be invited into projects or to have access to labs or um, collaborative teams, um, mentoring relationships. I mean, we have it pretty good in the sciences, though it does take for sure some initiative and some relationships even that I've had are harder one than others. I'm not sure Stuart Schreiber ever hired me. I just think I kept coming to his lab until he got used to seeing me there. Um, well, one thing about scientists is that they love to talk about their work. <laughs> no, that's right. And so I think it's good to be a little bit strategic. You know, I've always thought that there's two kinds of mentors that have helped me. One is like a North Star, like somebody who, man, in your perfect dream, if you could have the kind of contribution to science that they're so connected to and to have the experiences of basic and translational and to have the experiences of, of training and translating. And, um, you know, I always thought, you know, Stuart Schreiber and Craig Thompson and some of the more important inspiring figures, Ken Anderson, mentors in my life, you know, you don't know that you're going to ever get to that horizon, but you kind of can set your course against it. But then you need somebody who's a bit of a tugboat, you know, like, or a canary in the coal mine, like somebody just right out there in front of you you know, helping you answer pragmatic questions like, is this the year for the K08 or how do I know when my postdoc's over and I should apply for a job? Or what do you know about this venture capital group? Are they trustworthy? Um, and 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 that's might be more tactical, but it's actually really strategic just about the decisions that are right in front of you. And often um, the North Stars are looking for people like us, but the the canaries, the tugboats, you have to really go out and find them. They may not even consider themselves, you know, in a position to be your mentor as a peer, but have been such a source of guidance, um, such a source of guidance. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, um, Amber, for Thanks, your question. Everyone. Um, next up, 
Karen. Hey, hey Luke, can I? Yep. I'm, Jay's just reminding me of a book I, I read when I was a kid called The Little Toot. I don't know if Jay, if you remember that book about the tugboat, but I'll, I'll send it to you. You can you can page through it. I you know I have, I don't want to give work life balance in our industry a bad name. And most nights I don't have to do what I'm about to do, but I actually need to sign off because I have an eight o'clock meeting that I need to get on to. So I'm going to leave the clubhouse to you and, and Jay and the group and just thank you for the chance to engage and to spend time with everybody. Yeah. Thanks so much, Andy. Really appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. Jay. Thank you. So Karen, uh, if you're there, would you like to ask a question of Jay? I, I will. And actually, I, I, I had two questions, but I'll just have Jay answer both of them. So because uh, I was going to give each one of you one. Um, first of all, this has been a great clubhouse. Um, you guys have tapped into so many different topics that it could lead to multiple other conversations because you've talked about you've hit about a number of things, not only for entry level scientists, young scientists, and people getting into the field, but even mid-level people and people who are also kind of at that transition point and trying and thinking about their career and what is that next step. So thank you for addressing all these. Jay, I'd like to go back to what you had said at the very beginning where you were giving some of the summary of sort of the baked in, as you called it, concepts and things that Nibber is practicing relative to diversity inclusion. And you mentioned a, a, a resource material, uh, something that you had pulled all this really interesting statistical stuff from. So I'm curious if you could share that one and that piece of material, you could quote that one more time. And secondly, which was the question I was going to ask the both of you, which is relative to this, uh, the pandemic that we're sort of midstream in, we're still dealing with all of this and companies are still wrestling with when do you go back into a bricks and mortar environment? Could you comment a little bit on how this is, uh, how this is affecting your your culture, and how that's affecting some of the comments that you made about the 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 talent landscape being so competitive? Hey, Karen, could you just double click on the second question a little bit because I want to be sure I hit it correctly. Yeah. Okay. The, the second question is is really a, sort of dovetailing on this whole concept of we're still in this midstream of the pandemic and how are we really bringing our employee populations back into a bricks and mortar environment? What are we going to do with that, et cetera? But how is that affecting maybe the, the, the cultural shift that you are going through and addressing in in your this talent this this war for talent um because it really is it, it's been a war for talent before the pandemic hit and now it's becoming even more competitive and i'm curious as to how that's changed in your how that's affected your culture okay thank you that's so helpful um yeah times like this i wish i had my co-pilot andy here but for all on the line you know when you work for a Japanese company, it's 9 a.m. And in Switzerland, it's 2 a.m. And one of us can still hang out in the clubhouse. Um, just something to think about, always recruiting. Um, diversity content. Um, I did make reference earlier to an, an analysis, a new report from Deerfield Management um, that talked about um, a gender gap in venture-backed uh, healthcare companies. And... Um, it was, um, I, I learned about it on the business wire, um, but um, for sure, at a time when I'm not focused on my iPhone, but on a computer, I'd be happy to um, send a link to that if you can't find it online. Um, I will say that 
regrettably, this topic is well considered, um, thoroughly yep. considered, and the numbers are every bit as stark when Forbes or HBR or Inc. Um, cover this topic. Um, there have been a couple of um, uh, recent reports on women in science from um, the National Academies and the AAAS, um, and they all year on year in my five years here where this is just baked into our strap plan, um, if I f- it feels like there's just so little movement in aggregate of the numbers. And so we mm-hmm. work really hard on our local environment at NIBR. I mean, it's 5,600 scientists. And so we think that we can make a, a big change um, within our organization that creates ripples. Another way is, you know, we're a really good customer. Novartis. We're a big customer for some really big companies. And um, and we've started to explore how to, you know, make clear our expectations of those that we work with and contract with, um, that they must, you know, meet certain standards of, of diversity. And I can tell you that there was a very memorable business deal last year that I did not support because um, the, the, um, the, uh, constituency on the leadership team um, lacked diversity, and it was a watch out to me for groupthink and, you know, um, um, and potentially a challenge in innovation. Um, these aren't formalistic policies that we're exploring the feasibility of in our, you know, broad and international business, but I think that we can influence even from this singular organization where we are. But right now, we're just trying to set a good example. That's really interesting, Jay. Uh, that you uh, you said no to something on on these grounds. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was that has that been like publicized, or, or are you just telling uh, us that now? I'm just telling you that now. Okay. Um, I, I hope that's okay to those from Novartis listening. I don't have a, like a lawyer next to me, Luke. But I'll I'll, no, I'll, no, go, I'll go one step further. There was a company starting, and um, we were asked to participate um, in this company. And the leadership team being assembled was in um, the dimensions that we're speaking of on this call about as uh, undiverse as you could imagine. And I would not support participating until this was uh, remediated. And um, and you know what? They were appreciative of the feedback and they became a more diverse leadership team in a matter of two weeks. And so I do think that this community wants to do the right thing. Um, and there's no question that one of the challenges to gender inequity, and, and for sure it's true for race as well, at, in the boardroom is that management diversity isn't good. But management diversity we have no excuse for because the input into these laboratories is so well balanced. And this really gets to your second question in part, Karen, although I, I know it's a, an independent thread, is what kind of organization – are you trying to be for the associate? They're experiencing mm-hmm. – an associate doesn't experience Novartis. They experience a project. They experience a manager. They experience collaborators. It can be really easy for them to get things done or really hard. They experience work-life balance in a, in a wholly individualistic way. And so um, we actually have a really strong HR organization called People and in, in Organization, p and um, They're incredible strategic partners that have created um, – a, a choice with responsibility, we call it, a way to approach your job. That's a discussion with your manager, but it starts with, you know, what brings the best version of you to the lab when you need to be there? And then where do you want to be to be most effective in those moments you're not in the lab? Now, Karen, I will tell you plainly, 
and honestly, that if two years ago you were on my team and you said, hey, Jay, I think I'm going to work at home for 13 months, I probably would have said, <laughs> okay, okay, you know, and I would have to be a good guy and a good manager and be supportive. I would have gone along with it, you know, trust but verify, but I wouldn't have been comfortable with it. Now we've had this pandemic experience. We all know how to use Microsoft Teams and Zoom and we've got, you know, printers and fax machines in our bedrooms and 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 we've seen shockingly minimum business interruption to our portfolio work by making the labs um, safe for scientists. We've been able to keep the labs open through the pandemic, knock on wood without any workplace transmission. But we only achieve that by depopulating them, de-densifying, mm-hmm. building um, a structure a climate, a culture. Um, and it actually, honestly, in some ways, it's a more inclusive environment because of the chat function on Teams. You know, no longer does the loudest voice in any discussion carry the weight of the room because everybody's in nine point font on my screen. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lower activation energy to get a word in edgewise. So we actually have learned a lot through the pandemic. I would be lying if I said we know exactly when and how we're going to emerge from it. Um, But I do think if we start with the cultural imperative and then we start to build clarified expectations for associates as to what does distributive work and work from home mean and look like, you know, we'll be in a much, much stronger place. Now, you asked about the war on talent and I go ahead, Luke. Sorry. Let's let's be real quick because we have a couple more questions I'd like to get to. War on talent. It's a war on talent. (laughs) Yes. we have been very lucky through the pandemic to have about our lowest voluntary turnover rate in um, several years. Um, and people on average stay at Nibber for 10 years and they are in their role, you know, less than three. And so we work very hard to make this a lively work environment with a good sense of acceleration. But when people do leave and they go on to lead organizations outside of Nibber, um, that is baked into our talent development model. And we just work to have the strongest conceivable bench. Lots of great stuff in that Thank answer you. there, Jay. Thanks, Karen, for your question. The only thing that I would add real quick, I mean, I'm a solo entrepreneur, so I don't have cultural issues to attend to with a team. But I, um, but I am very mindful of diversity and inclusion in my extracurricular type activities. Well, I, I mean, I am for my freelance writers and the people who I quote in my newsletter, for sure. That's one of the impor- most important things I do as a journalist. But um, as, a, uh, as a person who uh, raises money for good causes uh, in the biotech community, um, I, I just announced last week this Timmerman Traverse for Life Science Cares, and it's a team of 20 people in the biotech community. And to the point that one of the earlier questioners raised about the importance of network, um, if I'm going to take a group of people on a bonding experience in the outdoors for two and a half nights, uh, uh, it's 20 people. It's going to be 10, 10 men, women. Uh, and, uh, there's going to be some young people. There's going to be some older people. There's going to be people of color. So, uh, because this is going to help people build the kind of meaningful relationships that advance careers. Um, I it, it, it's, it's on me to make sure that that is, uh, th- that's an opportunity that's open to, um, everyone. Okay. So I don't know how much time we got left. We've got a lot of questions in the queue. Thanks, Karen. Um, Garima, can you, uh, you've been very patient. What's your question? (laughs) 
Yeah, I'll get to the question directly. Thanks for the great discussion. Um, my question as an early career scientist is, um, we, we touched upon this earlier, um, like the specialist versus generalist um, kind of mindset and which has more impact. And I'm asking this in context of, um, you know, target discovery or preclinical research. Uh, we see that it's becoming more and more data-driven. And I see a lot of fellow um, scientists, biologists who uh, want to cross-train in machine learning or data science. Um, and I've uh, I've been conflicted on this, like if we should focus on the biology aspect of it and, uh, you know, uh, that brings more value by specializing in that area and collaborating with, an, you know, a specialist from the data science side um, or like as early in in our early career stage actually cross train and that is more impactful that's a great question here i have a strong opinion so it's a watch out for me i feel that in our line of work that the coin of the realm is to have a grounded foundation as a specialist now that gets you to the table sometimes but that's not necessarily what you deliver at the table and so you need to start a deep and grounded specialist and become um, a multilingual generalist. Um, this takes a long time. There's no shortcut. Just ask Elizabeth Holmes. And science is not interdisciplinary. It is non-disciplinary as we practice it at Nibber. And so to download the concepts, the language, the experimental trajectories, the um, it, 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 it it, at least it took me a long time. Um, but as I look around my leadership team table, as I look around the table at a project team meeting, you know, there's the chemist, there's the biochemist, there's the cell biologist, there's the pharmacologist, there's the data scientist, there's the project manager and the financier. But like at that table, um, everybody is is tasked with, with serving the science in all of its dimensions. Um, and then about collaboration, it's a skill, and you just have to perfect it. Um, and the only way to do that is to get feedback when you're doing it right and feedback when you're doing it wrong. Great. Thanks, Garima. Um, yeah, I, I like the, the metaphor of uh, uh, collaboration being like an exercise. It's like uh, it's a muscle. You, you have to exercise. And the more you do it, the, the better you get, the stronger you get, and the less you do, the, the weaker it gets. <laughs> um, Thank you so much for the insights. Thanks. Um, Osaze, what's your yeah, question? Yeah, it's Osaze. Uh, hi, how's it going? Um, I, I feel bad that Andy left him. Actually, uh, yeah, I spent some time in Takeda and their Center for External Innovation. So I, yeah, I guess I would have plugged in us as a sort of paid person. Um, in any case, uh, so I also consider myself part of the sort of young scientist demographic. Question for you, Jay. Um, if you were to pick three three big buckets of of um, technologies or, or themes to, to focus on as somebody who's really early on, if you were to, you know, talk to yourself like uh, 25 years ago, say, for example, um, what would you focus on knowing that you wanted to focus on big problems um, in the drug development space and why? Oh, man, Osaze, you're giving me only three. I'm going to I'm going to answer your question, but it's painful for me. All right. Um, the one that comes to mind first is quantitative methodology. Um, I feel that the ability to, with command line scripting to be comfortable dealing with primary data today 
that really having strong quantitative methodology is is just really really important. It's actually too probably too late for me to go back um, and to really learn um, um, the, the languages of computer science necessary to interact with the data my institutes generate all the time. Um, but I wish I could. I wish I could. Um, if only to be able to communicate with data scientists, this is going to serve you well, whether you end up in epidemiology, clinical development, or drug hunting. The next two, unfortunately, need to be quite specific to your curiosities. For me, I was always enamored with molecular recognition, the way small molecules bind proteins, and the way that sometimes those interactions contribute to a, a, a positive medical consequence. And so for me, I needed to learn the biology of diseases called pathophysiology, um, which you, I learned in medical school, um, and, and organic chemistry, chemical biology, the shape, structure, the design, and to a certain extent, the synthesis of molecules. Um, it, but paired with quantitative methods, your choice could be stem cells and biotherapeutics. It could be you know, force fields and protein structural biology. Um, um, but I do think quantitative methodology is, is something that an early career scientist just must, must, must today learn. I love that answer, the, the passion. <laughs> Thanks for asking that, Osaze. Um, we, I know we're, we're almost out of time. I'd like to get a couple more in here from AJ and Saeed. Um, AJ, what's your question? Hi, yes, uh, PhD student here at Berkeley, uh, finishing up hopefully within a year. Uh, I, I have a question stemming from some of the toxicity in academia that I've seen. Um, so in, in academia, you know, labs are, are small, really intimate settings. Um, where the experience and research is completely dependent on on your PI, pretty much. Um, so I have a question on uh, what do uh, I guess what do Novartis uh, and Decada do either culturally or structurally to improve access to mentorship and ensure an even playing field in research um, in the face of, for example, uh, research choke points. Thanks, Saeed. I hold Berkeley in such high regard. And we have, as you may know, with our Emeryville facility, such a inspiring collaboration with Dan Namura and colleagues there, COVID and chemoproteomics. I, I hate to hear that experience of yours or of your colleagues that you reference could be characterized um, as toxic. And I, I just know that in that environment there, there is an inspiring and caring and supportive you know, place to train. Um, yeah. And so I think that it isn't in this case, academia versus industry, but I will answer your question. Um, we're really serious about culture. Um, I hope every scientific environment is, we describe it, we talk about it. Um, when I started at Nibber, brave, open, and kind, brave, open, and kind, every town hall, brave, open, and kind, every person we hire, are they brave? Are they open? Are they kind? Um, and then you have to walk that talk. Brave, let our science be brave, open. Let us be curious to ideas from the outside, the inside, the literature, your direct report, my direct report, a different unit. Um, and then kindness, you know, which to me is like the universal truth of, of leadership, affiliation, collaboration. So we're really serious about culture, inspired, curious, and unbossed. Um, mentorship, as you may have heard earlier, it sounds like Andy has a really structured program. Um, we embed it into the reporting relationship, and then we avail mentors to scientists for their development beyond the reporting relationship so that, you know, the, the advice you're getting isn't, 
influenced implicitly, accidentally or explicitly by the workflow, the work plan. We've made it, I think, very easy to talk about interests within the organization or beyond the organization in a way that's not offensive. I don't want to keep working with you. I like that project over there. And then even the playing field, this is this is hard because it takes real discipline um, in leadership to close projects that have great champions and possibly some momentum, but are hitting a fatal snag because you don't, it doesn't present itself as a fatal snag, just as a snag. Um, I struggle with this. You know, I, I believe so much in these teams and I know that they can, and they have, you know, fought through walls before. How do we know when we're no longer doing a team a service by having them work on a project that is an either core to strategy or likely to deliver a medicine? what they came here to be a part of. That same way I always felt, you know, the weight of responsibility for my grad students to get them a paper, get them a job. I feel this weight of responsibility to get our scientists a drug, which is ironic because they're going to invent the molecule. Um, so I think we could do better um, helping project teams more nimbly uh, pursue other science, but we can't kill too early because then, you know, we just serially follow narrow threads. Anyway, I think a big part of it is culture. And I think the managers and learning to be both a manager and a leader, um, being both a supervisor and a mentor is, is a big part of, um, of, um, of the, you know, required learning at Niver. Great stuff. Brave, open, and kind. I'll have to jot that down. Uh, I think a lot of the most successful people that I've met can, can check those boxes. Um, Thanks for your question, AJ. Uh, last up, uh, Saeed, what's your question for Jay? Uh, uh, hi, and thank you for letting me to talk. Uh, actually, Jay um, touched on most of the things that I wanted to talk, uh, but I have like a few comments. One is that one of the comments that Jay made a few uh, days ago about direct discovery is the artesian field. And that's make me like a big fan of NJ and uh, I started to uh, follow you. And today also when you talk about mentor and uh, networking, I, I think it's the big, biggest factor to having a good uh, networking and a good mentor. And sometimes you uh, don't expect where to find your mentors. Uh, and the things that happened to me was that uh, I was working uh, with, with one of the bioinformaticians, you might know him, Grant Belkar, and we had a paper in Pipeline. And suddenly he, be he became my mentor. And that was the uh, inspiration to basically um, uh, start thinking about like uh, coming to R&D and uh, uh, pharma and uh, rethinking about uh, being in academia because uh, the things that happened, for example, to me that I wrote a uh, grant basically application and it was rejected and it was based on a paper that uh, we had in a pipeline and everyone was happy with it. And everyone was telling me that you need to play the game. You need to um, build your track record, publish more paper, then uh, reviewers will fund you. Then I started thinking that, okay, why I should waste my time? And um, basically um, should be another way to um, basically raise money, do the things that I want to do. And uh, it happened when I basically started listening to 
to podcasts and um, basically learning from uh, all uh, um, biotech um, basically um, um, academy, I would say. And that was the biggest things that I decided to basically think seriously about um, biotech. And I just wanted to thank you for um, coming to Clubhouse and uh, otherwise someone like me would never um, be in touch and know about uh, your uh, thought. And I, I live in Sydney. And um, there you go. You listen to podcasts to learn the ropes of biotech. I, Jay has been a previous guest on my podcast. So was Andy. <laughs> and, 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 and it's really a pleasure to have Jay and Andy here today on Clubhouse and, and sharing their thoughts. Was there anything else that you wanted to say, Jay? No, I just want. Oh. Hey, um, Saeed, thank you. You know, Luke, I'd follow you anywhere, maybe not over Everest, um, but, but I really appreciate the invitation to join. I, I will admit plainly that the challenge of reflecting on mentorship for an hour and a half um, was substantial, so as not to be you know, too preachy. Um, but it is wonderful that you organize thinking around this because this is a, a vital dimension that we you know, we just can't take seriously enough and um, look forward to being a listener on this show uh, for weeks to come. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Last thing Thank that you. I wanted. Last thing I wanted to say is something that when AJ AJ brought up this point about you know a difficult faculty member say, and you know I, I was just reading the first few pages of the the new Codebreaker book by Walter Isaacson about CRISPR and Jennifer Doudna, and you know there's a new face in science, and there's a reference early in there to uh, James Watson, and you know Watson has his history right, uh, and uh, I just think you know gosh. Uh, there are so many people who have so much to contribute and, you know, people like Jennifer Doudna, um, like the world's open to her now to form all kinds of companies and collaborations based on, you know, that groundbreaking discovery. And there's just a whole group of people coming up that are going to do amazing things like that and hopefully follow in her footsteps. Great. Well, everybody, I know we've run over. So thank you so much for joining Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.